I said two things to Barbara. One, don't make it too short. I want to keep it long. And two, I want to look like a 1950s American soldier who has been in the Army for about five months, so he doesn't have the, you know, the <laughs> There's a little mop on the top. I think you look good. Welcome to the 538 Elections Podcast. We're still in uh, soft launch mode. We've been kind of putting this into the world as we continue to pilot in the feed for uh, our podcast, What's the Point? That means if this is good, we'll take credit for it. If it's bad, we're still piloting. Just Just disavow. No, we'll just blame Nate for it. (laughs) Okay. Uh, My name is Jody Avergan, and this week, uh, against what looked like their best efforts, Democrats are actually making some news. There was a debate, a debate scheduled uh, for the Saturday before Christmas opposite a Cowboys-Jets game. But still, leading up to it, we found out that Bernie Sanders staffers had looked into Clinton voter data and they had gained accidental access to this. But it kind of turned into this public fight and set the debate up for high drama, which then kind of totally petered out in the debate itself. But we are going to actually spend some time on it because it gets to these larger sort of data issues. First, let's introduce our regular panel, Nate Silver, editor-in-chief of 538. How are you? Good. Thank Good. You. Claire Malone, political reporter. Hi, Jody. Hi. And Harry Enton, freshly shorn. You look great, Harry. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, (laughs) Hi, and shalom to all of you, or Shabbat shalom if you're listening to this on a Friday night or Saturday during the day. (laughs) Okay. Let's start where we always start. Today's polls say this. Tomorrow's polls say something different. They try and quantify things that sometimes seem unquantifiable. Candidates use them. Moderators use them. Pollsters and analysts use them, of course. And so each week we're going to start with a question, good use of polling or bad use of polling. And sometimes it'll come from a candidate, sometimes from the media. Today it comes courtesy of Rand Paul from CNN's State of the Union this past Sunday. So let's take a listen to to Rand Paul and his use of polling. You know, I think that uh, we've all let the polls consume us too much. I don't think the polls are very accurate. In Kentucky, a week before the governor's race, the polls were off by 13 points. That's when they're supposed to be accurate. I think we have sort of American Idol type of polls right now where uh, one candidate is getting an enormous amount of time on TV and people are saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I might vote for him. Well, these people don't get out and vote. About 10 percent of Republicans will vote in Iowa. So uh, you can be wildly off. And I guess what disappoints some of us who aren't as high in the polls is that if we skew all the coverage towards the polls, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Harry, it sounds like... Rand Paul's been reading 538 maybe or something. Is that a good use of polling there by Rand Paul? You know, I, I have to think that it was, in fact, a good use of polling. I mean, he's exactly right. The polls were off at the Kentucky gubernatorial race this past year. Uh, they were off, in fact, pretty much in all the races in that state. And we know from past history that even if the polls are, quote, unquote, accurate at this point, that is that they're a true judge of the electorate, it doesn't mean that they're predictive. We still got a lot of time until the Iowa caucuses. At this point, Rick Santorum wasn't anywhere close to the lead for the 2012 Iowa caucus. So, yeah, it's very conceivable that the polls at this point are not a portrayal of what will actually occur on Election Day. But as a rhetorical strategy for someone who's way back in those polls, does starting to attack polling methodology scan as like a way for someone to get back in the mix? I think kind of. Yeah. I mean, American Idol style polls is like a good line. And basically what he's saying is, hey, we've still got a lot of time going. You people still have plenty of time to make up your mind and and vote Paul. Um, Yeah. So I think for my mind, it does kind of make a lot of sense for him to attack polls because it's like, you know, people are people kind of tend to see it as like gobbledygook that's being proffered by cable news. And he's saying like, no, the people haven't spoken yet and there's still a chance. I 
I stand with Rand. <laughs> <laughs> I would say I think when a candidate complains about the polls, usually a negative indicator for how um, his or her campaign is going. But he's right that sometimes even under the best of circumstances, usually a general election late in the race, polls are pretty good, but sometimes they're not. They were way off in Kentucky, for example, out of midterms 2014. But we're not – it's not late yet. It's still pretty early, and it will be early until – about oh three days before Iowa, and we're not making this up to go along. When Rand Paul will still be way back in the polls. <laughs> I was to, oh, I don't can, think Rand Paul tell, has much. Can of you a tell shot. us when it's time to like when it's time for panic, candidates to panic? Iowa. I mean, it's not like it's not like there's some arbitrary right. line in the sand, right? Um, you know, I think Trump certainly survived like an early scrutiny phase. It's not like just a passing fancy, but still, there's something in the notion mm-hmm. that we've never had a moment yet where Trump wasn't the dominant story. In the news, you yeah. know, in in October, which is kind of his quietest month, you saw him maybe stagnating or falling a little bit, and Carson was catching up to him a little bit. Um, that all changes, especially if Trump loses Iowa. Ted Cruz becomes, I presume, he's the non-Trump winner, becomes the headline story, maybe the center of gravity in the race for a change. Um, one thing about Trump is that when you ask Republican voters who do you think is the best shot to beat Hillary, he does really well. On that question, he gets about 50% of that, even when he gets about 30% of the vote overall, which to me implies that there's a lot of skepticism about Trump that isn't priced into the polls yet and will be potentially if he starts to lose states or have a rough patch in his coverage. You know, there's a lot of downside there potentially. So Rand Paul gets good use of polling marks uh, from all of us. And I, I'll just add that, like, I think this is the role to some extent that someone with the last name Paul like should be playing in these elections and his father did it really well in the debates just kind of being like a clear voice for like defining conservatism and just defining kind of like a very consistent rational approach and I actually think Rand it wasn't until this last debate actually last week that he kind of played that role now that's not a winning role so that's right. maybe why not he, he doesn't want to play it but like this just felt like a moment built for someone with that last name to just like, well, and cut through like and the s- contrarians to conventional wisdom right like exactly but, but what, one thing i want to point out which was actually really smart about his critique was that he was basically saying that who the polls claim are likely voters people who are actually going to turn out to vote in these caucuses are that the screens are too wide which is something that we've been saying for a long time and it was that's what i think he was talking about with the american idol type of style of voting which was the oh we have this in- entire huge amount of people saying they're going to vote who aren't actually going to. All right. We're going to move on from good use, bad use, except for to tag it with one thing that caught our eye. Uh, Our producer, Galen, flagged this for us. And this is from a PPP poll, which I know we have some skepticism (laughs) around. Yeah. Nate makes that sound. That wasn't me. (laughs) Sure it wasn't. Nevertheless, uh, this poll found that 30% of Republican voters want to bomb Agraba, which is actually the fictional country from Aladdin. So I actually, this was like got made the rounds. People, this is like perfect for a tweet or whatever. But I actually think it gets to maybe something more substantive, which Nate, I'm, I'm curious what you think of, which is like, should you be polling on things that don't exist? And this kind of like got, gotcha poll, this is like the polling equivalent yeah, of when me, Jimmy Kimmel goes on reflects, the street and tries to make people look stupid or whatever. It reflects badly on the pollster as much as the voters, right? Um, especially in like an automated poll where there's not an opportunity for for a voter to say, excuse me, and PPP, for all we know, asks a bunch of these questions and only kind of reports results when they get a successful trolling response. I don't know. But I it think, doesn't serve to highlight but, the fact that polls are 
kind of an absurd fiction at this point anyway and that i think it highlights that ppp is not an organization that i put at the forefront i mean if you look the more important work that we've done on ppp is to show that the only way that they have accurate polling is by doing incredible amounts of herding meaning they look up the real clear politics or 538 average um and they're always within a point of it or two in a way that's statistically impossible unless um i would call it cheating so they kind of have a phase where they troll and get a lot of headlines and they do some democratic slanting polling and then at the end they get to look smart by hurting off the more <laughs> legitimate pollsters who are actually paying for a better product so i'm not a big fan of this yeah. polling company and we will continue to kind of do this like parsing of the good polling firms and bad polling firms <laughs> and so forth but but harry you really want to take it to ppp I, I, no i just want to point out that nate's face during that segment he, you can see <laughs> when he gets angry or gets really serious like when i know i've screwed up it's the same exact face that he just got right, right. there well then it's let's not personal it's just like yeah. it's just like I think these guys blur what, – what really pissed me off is when people take work that's hard to do and they blur it with really sloppy work, right? Polling is hard to do. And maybe there has to be some type of universe for – not every poll has to be an expensive $30,000, 800-person poll. But they kind of deliberately blur it by asking trolley questions. Um, and then when it's time to actually put up real results – they either hurt or tend to do poorly if there's no one else to hurt off. Let's let's move on. Let's get to it. The Democrats held their second Saturday evening debate this past weekend, and you you all watched it because that's your job. It was a great Saturday night. It was here there, in the studio. There, in fact. It was in the studio. There's a live stream on ABC where we could watch you yeah. sitting around and typing into a live blog and eating I Shake Shack in. at one point. Yeah. Um, but let's let's talk about the actual substance since we did watch it. Maybe a lot of uh, people out there did not. But, um, they have lives. And also the race is, you know, less interesting than on the GOP side. But let's talk about the Saturday night thing. Why are these debates happening on a Saturday night to is begin this, with? This is not mysterious, is it? It's not. I don't think it's mysterious. I think Bernie Sanders was right when he said, I think on a Sunday show, right, that, you know, the DNC is, is kind of trying to tamp down viewership of these debates, partially because they're they're probably pretty worried about um, maybe, maybe liking – Maybe people figuring out like, oh, I like I like Bernie Sanders here. He uh, pretty much yells the whole time, which is, has its own charm, I think, on a on a debate platform. Saturday night. On a Saturday know. night, he's 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 screaming. No, but I think the DNC sort of wants to just you know they want a really easy Hillary nomination, and I don't think they want to complicate matters a lot. No one here, everyone just kind of accepts that as the reason. It's asinine, of course. I mean, why the hell else would you have a debate? On a Saturday night opposite an NFL game. And so why Christmas. isn't there a huge uproar about that? That seems like the party but really is, putting its thumb on the scale. There is no – I think partly because Clinton's done, in my view, pretty well in these debates where it's like, oh, actually probably would have helped her. So she maybe shot herself in the foot a little bit. But there is some of that. And I thought that the data breach story that I know we'll talk about momentarily plays into that a bit. But it's funny. Like for as much as we have all these debates about – the party decides on the GOP side and what's the role of elites. On the Democratic side, the party is completely getting yeah. its way, right? right? Like completely getting its way. It's you know probably going to be – and we do think, by the way, that Bernie could win New Hampshire, maybe Iowa. Overall, though, it's going to be one of the smoother, most lopsided nominations ever, we think. Harry, did anything any? after Saturday night lead you to change that, that view? No. 
Okay, moving on. Uh, no, let's talk about the let's talk about the data breach, which again that was the sort of high stakes issue going in. And Claire, you did some great reporting on the actual sort of substance of of, of that story. But as a debate moment, it really kind of petered out, right. and I was surprised, right? Because it's like I think this is the second time there's been a possible Sanders Clinton friction point, and they have then. Uh, first it was with the emails and now with the data breach. And in both cases, they've just like publicly had this kumbaya, like we're yeah. not going to go there moment. But but why? Why I, would Sanders do that? I think there's a pretty – there's a difference between what the campaigns will say on a non-debate setting. You know, like the, what they'll say to the press or what they'll say on Twitter or whatever and what they'll say in a debate, which is that I think Sanders and Clinton kind of understood that people – Watching the debate, we're probably pretty focused on the issues. There's probably a certain demographic who's watching the debate, and it kind of seems like a petty little fight to, to talk about uh, a, a pretty inside baseball thing, which was the data breach. <laughs> petty little <laughs> fights have like propelled many, many, many debates and many, many candidates. Well, that, that's why Clinton was smart uh, because the media is desperate to find a storyline in the in this race because yeah. it's not that competitive from a horse race standpoint, and the media seems pretty disinterested. In talking about the substance of what Bernie Sanders brings to to the table, there is some irony in the liberal media tending to indulge arguments of Donald Trump more than the ones that Bernie Sanders makes. Um, I'm starting to sound like Bernie Sanders <laughs> a little bit here. You are um, Bernie Sanders, but it was an inside baseball story that I think you know was in Clinton's interest to avoid, even but though also, it's technically uh, something that happened to her. Oh, let's be honest, it like, could have backfired. People would saying? literally, and I'm not being hyperbolic. Reporters would literally be invoking Watergate, would literally be invoking Watergate if the shoe were on the other foot. So we've been talking about it as this debate moment, but let's actually talk about the issue itself and the data breach itself. So, Claire, do you want to try and give us a little primer on exactly what data was (laughs) breached or even if that's the right word that I'm using there? Yeah. Okay. So it all starts with – the Democratic National Committee has what we'll refer to as a voter file, what they refer to as a voter file, which is basically uh, logs, information about voters throughout all 50 states. And I think in my piece I said it's the, you know, it's the informational teat that's, that campaigns suckle on during yeah. – you know, there's, there's that vivid image for you podcast <laughs> listeners. Um, no, but basically what it means is that if you're running a, a modern campaign, you need to know who you can call, who you can email – um, and uh, the Democratic National Committee has gone through secretaries of state's logs throughout the, throughout the country and gotten all this information. That information, that massive files in, of information, is managed by this company called NGP Van. Let me make sure I got those initials right. Yes, I did. And NGP Van doesn't gather the information, but it basically manages it so it's accessible for campaigns to use. So, you know, not just a, a list of millions of names. It's something that they can make a product out of. Both the Sanders campaign and the Clinton campaigns have access to that list through different, you know, whatever, segments. On Wednesday morning, a firewall, due to a bug, a firewall came down and the Sanders team could see certain Clinton voter lists. And some of the people on their team looked at them and that was determined to be a no-no. Right, and and this was actually where some of the misreporting was. Right, they didn't actually technically download them; they saved them to an internal folder. I know it, you can get in the weeds here, but it's not like they went rushing in and like 
downloaded a ton of data to like a USB drive or something. Right. I mean, some of the argument from the Sanders campaign side is sort of that this is sort of like a white hat, you know, and hacking a white hat finds a problem and sort of reports it. And they're saying that that's what they Like they went in to kind of explore like how this, this spin, out, yeah, for I, their reporting. Right? I, I mean. think that this, I think there is a lot of politicizing of what's – I think there's ways to spin it either way. And, really. and either way, uh, someone from the Sanders campaign got fired. Sanders very sort of like very much apologized They've suspended the a couple other employees pending an investigation. If I were on that campaign, I'd be like, holy shit, there's a glitch and I can see all of Clinton's data. I'm sure as hell down this as much as I <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, like, Nate Silver wow, is just repeating. Wow. I, I, I'd like to disassociate <laughs> the rest of 538 from Nate Silver. Thank so you. We call this a moral gray So wait, I have, I have just one very simple question, which is like, is there only one of these companies in the world? Like, how great, is it that the two of them question, are both Jody. using NGP Van? NGP Van basically has um, a monopoly because they own, they've had the contract to manage this DNC voter file since 2007. Yes, there are other companies that do this, but uh, NGP Van is the big kahuna in this. In this like so part. often we hear these stories about how advanced all these data uh, and analytics efforts are, and then you get these moments where you realize, like, oh, it's just like one company that everyone needs the same. Yeah, and and it's and it's uh, there are other companies that do the same sort of thing. Um, Jim Gilliam and Nation Builder mm-hmm. um, also do this, but they also work for Republican candidates, whereas NGP Van only works for Democrats. So there's a certain amount of there's sort of a, a trust issue, I guess. A lot of Democrats will say we only want to work with Van because they work with the Democrats, whereas uh, Nation Builder is, for instance, helping Trump's campaign or the Trump the Trump campaign is a client. So, Harry, let me just ask you about the role of the DNC in a story like this, because we were talking earlier about how they are putting these debates on Saturday nights, and then we're and then in this story they jump in and they remove access from the Sanders camp and for the violation here and then they restore it like how do we not think of the DNC now as like just time and again putting their thumb on the scale and getting involved I I think that we could say a few things about the story right I think we can say one that the Sanders folks were clearly wrong in the situation and that's the reason that Bernie Sanders apologized on behalf of his team but at the same time I think a lot of people thought that there was an overreaction from the DNC cutting the Sanders team off from this data And I think it's very difficult not to argue that Debbie Wasserman Schultz is clearly backing Clinton, even if she's not backing Clinton. And that's not, I think, too surprising given that, you know, the Democratic establishment is behind Hillary Clinton. But I don't think most people care because I think most people recognize that Hillary Clinton is going to be this nominee unless something happens to her. And just to interject for listeners who did, I, I in my very long-winded explanation, I didn't get to say that the DNC cut off the yeah. saying they cut off Sanders' team from the data, which means they don't have access to lists of voters to call or houses to go to, which is hugely crippling. And this was, you know, they were their access was, was restored to the list on Saturday morning, the morning of the debate. Um, I wonder if. We feel like maybe this is the real lasting legacy of this story is actually that that's a moment where we realize how much data, how important data is to this whole operation. And maybe voters don't realize that. And I wonder if there's any voters out there who like saw this story and were like, wait a minute, what? Like there's I'm being targeted. There's all this information. I mean, maybe it was maybe it's naive to think that one of the moderators in the Saturday night debate would have sort of stepped back and taken that perspective and been like, should you be keeping all this information on on voters anyway? I mean, it's public information. Everything that's in a voter file is public information. Campaigns do go back and sort of what they call enhance information. So after they call you, if you take a campaign phone call and you sort of tell the person, 
you know, they ask you if the election were held today, who'd you who would you vote for? And you say, yeah, I'd vote for Bernie. Then they'd put that in the file, and that sort of enriches your file. But this is it's public information. But yeah, I mean, people are watching you. People are collecting data from your Facebook and your your. And everything. do voters know that? Do voters care, Nate? I mean, I think voters probably would care if they knew more about. The info that was collected on Well, I think – but it's also – I think it also speaks to the fact that, like, we have a changing reasonable expectation of privacy, right, which is – and I think that a lot of people sort of have a dim sense that that's happening, that things that you share get out there in the ether. Um, But I actually think campaigns – you know, it it is – I think it is – I mean, it's all type – you know, when Google emails me and be like, you better leave now, um, leave your office now, knows where I am, to make sure you get to your dinner reservation – that's a little creepy. It's a little right? creepy. Uh, so compared to that, I'm not sure it's any creepier per se. Is it any creepier than when I come into your office and tell you that you better leave now? For your- <laughs> That's a different conversation. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Okay. Uh, we, there's late breaking uh, Lindsey Graham news. Important <laughs> Lindsey Graham news right now, which is both the first and last time we will ever say he that. Also so he also got a haircut. Yes, Lindsey Graham also got a haircut. He was in his chair next to me. Um, <laughs> Harry. Lindsey Graham dropped out of the race just this morning. Why? For any number of reasons, not the least of which was that he didn't stand any real chance of winning the nomination. Um, But I think, in my opinion, the real reason that he dropped out of the race at this point is Donald Trump. And I say that because Donald Trump right now continues to lead the national primary polls. Donald Trump continues to lead New Hampshire. Donald Trump continues to lead in South Carolina. And Lindsey Graham wants to stop Donald Trump who he has called any number of names. He does not like Donald Trump's foreign policy, and he recognizes that in order to potentially stop Donald Trump, the establishment needs to be able to unite behind one or two candidates. And in him getting out, frees the establishment up in the Senate, which had been sort of being deferential to him to potentially endorse some other candidates, as well as the South Carolina money. So you're kind of saying that he may have not thought he was going to actually win much earlier, but the moment of stop Trump was now. Yeah. But why now? I mean, this is the, it feels like this is the first week in which actually Trump was starting to fall back, you know, Cruz has taken over. I mean, I think there are a lot, one, I think Lindsey Graham wanted to sort of free up establishment people who had endorsed him to sort of put their money behind another establishment person. Does he have a decent amount of Endorsers? He he has some. Well, there there are two things that are going. He he has some endorsements from some money people down in South Carolina. But more than that, there were a lot of people who were afraid to endorse anybody in the race because Graham was in there. They wanted to be differential to him. So even if they weren't endorsing him directly, Mm -hmm. they weren't endorsing somebody else because they didn't want to embarrass Graham. I also think if you watch the undercard debate on when was it Tuesday, which you probably didn't, but we did. um, Oh yeah, (laughs) Lindsey Graham's whole mo in that debate was voice of reason everyone else is crazy i'm not you know this this is this is how you do this this is how you do that this is how you put thousands and thousands of troops into syria (laughs) exactly like you know he was sort of getting his foreign policy message out there and very you could tell very much irritated with the whole trump rhetoric And, and i mean even the you know the way he dropped out of the campaign was with this sort of like gauzy video ad which part of me wondered, like, how many weeks ago did he film that? You know, <laughs> like, you yeah. turn that around. I mean, there's something too. That like, isn't a Bobby Jindal hidden camera in a tree video. <laughs> right. That is actually there's some production value there. I was just reading the reporting before we went on air, but I think there's something too about how he wants to not have his name be on the South Carolina ballot to he, avoid a certain amount of embarrassment. Oh. Um, but it's not clear why Lindsey Graham was running in the first place. He's kind of capitally bucket list a part of. Yeah, why not? Right, he had some fun. He but was one that definitely the, made the. Uh, JV debates, a little bit less terrible. 
I really thought you were actually going to say a little oh, more interesting. It's like you when you're stuck list. in the bus station all night because there's a blizzard, and you find there's a vending machine with like Reese's pieces or something. You know, a little bit better. He had a lot of eye rolls, a um, lot but, of solid. But, but what about kind of, the timing, Nate? Why now? This just seems like weird timing. Like it should have happened so uh, a month ago or a month from if now. If there's going to be any type of coordinated play by the establishment to rally behind a candidate before Iowa. It's got to start pretty soon, right? <laughs> um, you know, we say it's early in one sense. It's kind of early for the information that voters are processing. But to kind of line up the dominoes before they start getting knocked over, right now without intervention, it looks like those dominoes line up in such a way that Ted Cruz probably wins Iowa and gets a big surge of momentum. And Donald Trump is, I don't know, maybe number two or how far he'd fall. I'm not sure. Um but the establishment isn't real keen on Ted Cruz either. Meanwhile, there are doubts about Rubio. I think some I of think there's is- I think there's there are going to be Christmas tree huddles for the next like ten right. days where yeah. people don't people aren't going to be paying to, paying attention to the ground game as much campaign stuff, and they're going to be people are going to be in back rooms talking about what the heck they want to happen for the next six. But weeks. It's just when you have a lot of shit to do, it's like knocking a couple of chores off your list can be worthwhile, right? <laughs> the establishment's like, why the hell is Lindsey Graham? wasting anyone's time anymore let's get that easy stuff out of the way before we get into the hard stuff who else is in that on that list then i mean the, you to me Rand paul i mean i chose him in our draft and that's the number one of course claire See, that was a mistake this was the who's going to drop out first to draft i wasn't going to bring it up but i'm glad you did. I, 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 him number one i have no problem bringing up my own faults um i have a column at the end of every year pointing out the mistakes that i made um and we even did a video of it and i agree that i erred in selecting Rand Paul ahead of Lindsey Graham as the facts have borne out today. Like Samson, Harry's strength has been sapped after the haircut. <laughs> but who's who's on that list? I mean, Chris Christie's not going to drop no. out to save the party. No, right? I mean, it would be very interesting. I think the question that a lot of us have had is whether or not Jeb Bush, who continues to do poorly in the polls, clearly hates Donald Trump, and ha- his super PAC has money – if he recognizes that, look, I made a valiant run, but it's just not on the cards. Now, that may not happen before Iowa or maybe even before New Hampshire, but there's a lot of money there, and he has tied up a lot of establishment I don't think that support. happens until February. I, mean, no, I mean, if Jeb really is a party guy, he is the one guy who commands enough resources where he could be very helpful to – Two people, I you think. You really a Rubio think there's a, a chance that Jeb Bush drops out before the Iowa caucus? Absolutely if not, I woke guys. Up, yeah. You're I underestimating woke up, the psychodrama of the family. If I woke up tomorrow and found that Jeb Bush had dropped out, I would not be interesting. Well, shocked. Boy. I'd be somewhat surprised, but like, but you know, Jeb Bush is the one guy. And I'll look at New Hampshire too, where he still has eight percent support. Boy, you give that to Rubio or to Christie, you assume um, maybe not a safe assumption, but let's assume now that. Donald Trump loses and Iowa Ted Cruz wins, all of a sudden, not so hard for Christie or Rubio to win New Hampshire with, say, 24% of the vote or something. We do need to wrap up, and we are going to wrap up the way that we do every show, which is with a reason to worry, a reason for a Democrat to worry this week or a reason for a Republican to worry this week. And I'm actually going to present this week's reason to worry, and that is a reason for Republicans to be a little worried, which is there was an article in the Washington Post that 
highlighted five senators in swing states who are who may have trouble getting reelected because of Donald Trump and not because he's necessarily going to be the nominee, but just because he really has been around so long that he's starting to pull the party and starting to affect some of the terms on which the conversation in the GOP is taking place. And for more centrist senators, this may be an actual reason to worry. Nate, are you are you buying this? So this is one reason why you've heard rumors now that you could have a GOP or run as an independent. If Trump wins the Republican nomination oh, somehow, right. you have a splinter group of the GOP run as an independent, you know, not to win the presidential election, which they would probably be toasting at that point, but to make sure that they have um, a candidate who can represent the old wing of the Republican Party and get voters to turn out in the Senate and gubernatorial. So just kind of like to define what the GOP is. If Trump somehow. By the wins. way, this is a difference between I think um, Cruz winning the nomination and Trump winning the nomination. You can argue that for the top of the ticket, Cruz is pretty disastrous too. I mean, there's better research on what happens when you have a candidate who's quote unquote extreme ideologically. Um, by our math, it might cost him four or five points, which you can win a blowout, but but not a close election. Um, but you could see the party kind of gritting its teeth and being fairly united around Cruz. I mean, he has fairly conventional, albeit very conservative, policy positions. Whereas with Trump, doesn't really represent any constituency within the party, and I think there'd be so much resistance where, you know, the downside is is much greater. Very briefly, Claire, has Trump already just changed the terms of what it means to be a Republican candidate in 2016. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's a trite phrase, but the new normal means that people are acclimatized to a different thing in the culture. And now we're used to this sort of um, pretty inflammatory, pretty conservative rhetoric. And I think after a while, people, it sort of starts to become just part of the wallpaper and the part of the political wallpaper. And I think that that's a thing that, you know, if you're if you're if you're a Rob Portman or whatever, and and you're worried about reelection, absolutely. It's something to be worried about. Okay, that's where we're going to leave it. We have to wrap up, but thank you to Nate and Claire and Harry. My name is Jody Avergan, and thanks to everyone for listening. We're going to launch again our Proper Politics podcast in January before the Iowa caucus, but we'll be sharing some of this piloting as we go on the website and in the feed for my podcast, What's the Point? So keep your eye on that feed and on 538.com and on Twitter and Facebook, and let us know how we did. Email us at podcasts at 538.com. Dot com, and we'll talk to you soon.